Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Luke chapter 24. Beginning in verse 50. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 50. We're coming to the end of this long journey. I've been saying that we've been in Luke for two and a half years, and I actually went to confirm that. (laughs) We started in October of 2017. So... (laughs) We've been on this journey for a long time. It's not that we never took breaks, and we went through the book of 1 Peter last summer, Uh, but this has been a glorious journey, and let's look at how Luke ends this letter that he's writing for Theophilus so that Theophilus' faith can be sure. Here's what we read. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, I also want you to turn to Acts as part of our text this morning, chapter 1. As you know, Luke wrote, Acts as well. Luke is the only one that writes of Jesus' ascension uh, into heaven. Uh, He does that briefly in Luke, and I want to show it to you in Acts, beginning in verse uh, 6 of the first chapter. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on. As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us as we look at inexhaustible blessing that is in these words that are such simple words. Uh, Father, I pray that our hearts would love you more in light of uh, what we look at this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you are familiar with Bunyan's famous work, The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the memorable uh, scenes or moments in that book is when Christian is on the path, and there's another path that goes by the meadow. 
And it's off the main path, but it looks to be going in the same direction as the other path. And it looks uh, a lot easier to take that path. And as Christian gets on that path, he doesn't know that it leads him uh, astray. And he ends up uh, at the doubting castle where giant despair grabs him and throws him into a dungeon. And he's in the dungeon from Wednesday all the way until Sunday. And he's being tormented there with doubt. On Saturday, giant despair comes and says, kill yourself. If you don't kill yourself, I'll kill you. I'll take you out. The bodies of my slain are many. And it looks like all hope is gone for Christian. But while he's sitting there, he remembers something. Just before dawn on Sunday, he remembers that he has the key of promise that is in his bosom, right in his chest, right in his heart, that can unlock any door in Doubting Castle. And obviously, the thing the key represents is the promises of God in Jesus Christ found in the Scripture. To ponder the privilege we have to go through a gospel together. To spend four years looking at Christ, looking at his life. We wouldn't know anything about Christ if God has not revealed him to us in the scripture. So as we begin to close this book and turn to another, let us not forget the key, the, the privilege of being able to know Christ in his gospels. Oh, how we take for granted the promises we see in Christ. So as we come to the end, I want to go back to the beginning. I, it's very doubtful we'll finish today. Usually when I have as many pages as I have here, we have a part two. And so I'm just telling you on the front end, we're probably going part two next week. But if we go back to the beginning of Luke and we look at the very beginning, verse one, here's what we read. Luke says, in as much as I've undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke went and interviewed, most likely Mary, about Jesus' birth and about the angel coming to her. 
he went and he interviewed eyewitnesses. And we know that all scripture is written through the hand of man, but is ultimately the word of God because the Holy Spirit carries them along so that the scripture is uh, perfect. And he's writing this for Theophilus, that he can have certainty of the things of Christ. And because it's an orderly account, at the end of his letter, we expect there to be some sort of conclusion. And if we were going to continue on to read in chapter 1, let's say verse 31, when the angel comes to Mary, here's what she was told. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. So this son is going to be a king, and he's going to sit on the throne that David was promised in First Samuel 7, or in Second Samuel 7. He's going to be given the eternal throne of David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Abraham promised that from his line, there would be kings. That there would be a kingdom. That there would be a dominion from one of his seeds. And so as we look at Jesus' ascension into heaven, Luke doesn't say much, it says he ascended up into heaven. When we go back to the beginning, we see that what is happening is Christ is taking the throne. He's being seated at the right hand of God as the rightful king to sit on David's throne forever. And Mary sings a song in Luke 1, Uh, beginning in verse 49. And she says things like this, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name and, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So she prophesies that this son is going to help the weak, lift up the humble, and bring down the proud. This one is going to give. He's going to be a giving type king. And we definitely see this in our text. So let's turn back to Luke chapter 24 and look carefully at what Luke gives us in just a simple account that is so rich. 
It says, and he led them out as far as Bethany. Bethany is two miles east of Jerusalem. You could see the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. We know that from Acts chapter 1, verse 12, uh, that this spot by Bethany is the Mount of Olives. And we just read in the Acts account that the angel said, just as you saw him leave, he will return in the same way. Well, he left in a human body. Yes, it was a spiritual body, but it had flesh and, and bones, and he could eat food. He, was, he wasn't a ghost. And so he left from the Mount of Olives, and Zechariah chapter 14 tells us that Christ will return, and when he returns, his feet will land on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives will be split, and there will be a great valley. Part of it will move to the south, and the other part of it will move to the north when Christ returns bodily, just as the angel told him he would. And this is where Jesus' ascension took place. He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now, Luke could have highlighted anything. He could have highlighted the kingship of Christ. And it's definitely there. It began with the angel saying he was going to sit on David's throne. So when he goes up, we should imagine him sitting on that throne. But here's what Luke records. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And the question I want to ask you this morning is this. Do you know just how blessed you are in Christ? And I'm assuming that you don't. Because I don't think there's been a human being that's been able to exhaust that question. I don't think anyone can say, yes, I know how blessed I am in Christ. But as he ascends, that's what Jesus is doing. He's bestowing favor. He's bestowing blessing. Now, when God gives blessing, it can be temporal gifts. It can be the food that you eat after this service, and we need to thank God for the blessing of his provision. Or it can be spiritual blessings that are even beyond our comprehension. But that's what Jesus is doing as he's ascending. And it struck me this week as I was reading in 1 Samuel chapter 8. This just stood out to me in a way that when we went through 1 Samuel several years ago, I never saw it quite as clearly as I saw it here. Jesus blesses his people in, in infinitely unsearchable ways. But in order to see that, let's look at the black backdrop of earthly kings that we read about in 1 Samuel 8 so that we can see the glory of the diamond of Christ's blessing. So that as we look at the and, and ponder the blessing of Christ, we can be amazed. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 
This is the chapter where Samuel's getting to the end of his ministry as judge in Israel, and his sons are not godly men, but they're taking advantage of the people of Israel, and they've had it, and they have demanded to have a king just like the nations. And it made Samuel angry. But God said, give them what they want. Give them what they want, but tell them this. Look at verse 11. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons. You want a king? You don't want me to be king over you? You want a king like the nations? He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to heap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain of your vineyard and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And in the day that you cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go up before us and fight our battles. They said, well, that's fine. It's kind of a bummer word, Samuel, but we're going to take our chances that our king that we want isn't going to take from us. But when the true king is taking his throne, what is he doing? He is blessing. Some good friends of ours, Brandon and Samantha Ledoux, are here this morning with their children. And I asked permission to use their daughter Journey as an illustration, as a challenge to us. Journey is 14 years old. You want to just raise your hand, Journey? I told her I want to call her up, but there's Journey. Uh, last, at the, at the beginning of uh, last fall, Journey had a six-phase reconstructive open-heart surgery. open heart surgery at 14 years old. Brandon is a 
shop teacher in Grand Rapids, her dad, at the school she goes to. And while they're at Mayo Clinic, Brandon was telling me this yesterday, the teachers were sending emails, prayers, thoughts uh, for Journey. And as Brandon was reading the encouragement that those were sending their way through email, Brandon said, Journey kept tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Dad, will you tell them that I'm praying for them? Will you tell them that I'm praying for them as she wrote down their names and began to pray for them? And Brandon went on to tell me that the Lord laid on her heart to give every one of her teachers a study Bible with a note in it that tells them how she loves and appreciates them and then shares the gospel with every one of her teachers. And you wonder, one of the teachers, a real rough guy, said, how come there's not more bleeping kids like this out there? What is different about her? That in the midst of her struggle, she wants to give. Where does that come from? And as I asked her about last night, she said, Sam, it was Jesus, it wasn't me. And I know that. Jesus' fumes come off of people as they give in the midst of suffering. And as Christ was ascending into heaven, he was blessing. As he had done his work as a different type of king, a type of king that came to give his life as a ransom for many. It became possible for that Christ to commission his people and send them out with that same sort of love, that same sort of commission to shine the light to a world that has not seen that sort of love, that sort of giving. And so we're not surprised in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, when Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let me just read it again. Ask God to help your brain work. Because these sentences are impossible apart from the grace of God to even grasp what he's saying. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which our minds can't even comprehend what that means. How many blessings are there? In the, how many spiritual blessings are there in the heavenly places? How blessed are you in Christ? How incredibly 
fortunate are the disciples that receive a blessing from an ascending Christ. And so, do you know just how blessed you are in Christ? If you read Paul's letters, he starts out every letter telling you who you are in Christ, and then he tells you to live like who you are in Christ. And as he tells you who you are in Christ, he keeps saying, in Christ, you are this. In Christ, you have this. In Christ, you just take your Bible and read through the New Testament, read through the pastoral epistles and just take a highlighter and every good thing you see, there's going to be some form of in Christ, it's yours. All of his promises find a yes and amen in Christ. And this is what Luke is highlighting for us. Secondly, do you know the blessing of the ascension? We celebrate the birth of Christ like crazy, don't we? We celebrate birthdays. One of the things that uh, John MacArthur said in his intro to this text is he said, what has a person done at their birth? What, what have they accomplished? How much more, now Christ is unique, but how much more at the end of Christ's work, at the end of his life as he ascends, as he takes his throne, as the king rises above every other name because of his work, how much more ought we celebrate the ascension of Christ? And yet, often we think very little of it. And we're by no means going to exhaust it, but I want to give you five things. Five ways we are blessed in the ascension of Christ. The first thing I want you to see in Acts chapter 1, it says, while they were gazing, in verse 10, while they were gazing into heaven, he went and behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? So as he ascends, they don't take their eyes off heaven. They had to have felt like they're losing not only a friend, but the Christ, the one they have spent all this time with. And he's been telling them that he's leaving. And now he leaves and all of us hate saying goodbye to good friends as we stood there with the Russells this week as they moved away or with the Joplins the last couple weeks. It's heart-wrenching to say goodbye to friends. But the angels are standing next to them saying, quit looking up. Quit being bummed out that Christ has taken off because he's coming again. When we say our earthly goodbyes, we really don't know if we will see our friends again. We're not promised tomorrow, but we will see Christ again. And joy ought to fill their hearts because when Christ ascends, a bad thing isn't happening. Blessing beyond blessing is 
happening for God's people. Let's just look at a few of them. As Jesus ascends into heaven, we see that God is confirming that Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God's king. His son that he has chosen to sit on his throne. Because what if Jesus said he was going to do all that and then he just died and remained dead? But he didn't. He's received into heaven to the right hand of God, to the right hand of his power. In Matthew 22 and verse 41, here's what we read. Now, when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? You see, Jesus was pressing them on the question of who, who do you think I am? Do you think I'm just David's son, born in the line of David? How come David called him Lord then? My, how, how come he said, the Lord said to my Lord, unless Jesus is God's divine son. The second thing we see in this ascension is that Jesus accomplished the mission he came and left heaven to do when he ascends to the right hand of the Father. So in Mark 10, 45, when it says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as he's received into heaven, it's like the receipt that God has accepted his work. And that's going to come in spades when the Holy Spirit comes upon them in a few days. Thirdly, Jesus, as he ascends to the right hand of God, is interceding for us. You see, while Luke says very little about the, his ascension, the New Testament unpacks the implications of the ascension in so many ways. In Romans 8.34, Paul says, Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So as Jesus goes up, he's still working on your behalf not to pay for your sins, but to intercede on your behalf. He's like your advocate. He's like your lawyer. And he doesn't just intercede as a lawyer. He prays for you. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Did you know, Christian, there's not a moment of your life on this earth where Jesus Christ is not interceding on your behalf. 
is not praying for you. And I don't say this to make much of you. I say this to make much of our glorious Christ. That he always lives to intercede. How good does it feel to have another brother or sister in Christ pray for us? But Christ ascends to the right hand of God and is interceding for us. His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is fixing our prayers as they're not according to the will of God as they go up. The fourth thing I want to point out in the ascension of Christ is that Jesus paved the way for redeemed humans to dwell with the Father. You see, this is the problem of the whole Bible, right? Psalm 5.4 says, You're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. What's the problem of the whole Bible? Man has been separated from God because of sin. And it seems like there is no hope for reconciliation. For God to reconcile with man would mean he would have to give up his divine justice. He would have to take sin lightly. He would have to shuffle sin under a rug. Isaiah 59 1 and 2 says, or verse 2 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden when they sinned, where they experienced the blessing of dwelling with God in the garden. Sin has separated them from the good blessing of God because God is a holy God. Evil can't dwell in his good presence. The reason why I say it that way is people will never escape the presence of God. Hell will be the presence of God's wrath for all eternity for those who are separated from the blessing that we can have only in Christ. Adam brought sin into the human race and therefore death. And we're told in Romans 5 that Christ is the second Adam. That while Adam brought death, Christ brings life. And so through One of the things we see in the ascension is for the first time in all of times, a human being in a body enters into the holy place, not made with hands in the heavens, not like a temple on this earth, but a human being enters in to the holy place. We can get a little bit of a sense of this. We don't have time, but in Revelation chapter 5, John sees, it says in verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written 
within and I'm back. Sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Within this scroll is the title deed to the earth and all creation, the culmination of all of God's plans. And who can open it? Who is worthy to grab this out of the right hand of God? And yet Jesus Christ, a man, a human being, God incarnate, walks up to the throne of God and grabs it out of the hand of God and he and he alone is worthy to open the scroll. And so we see the uniqueness of Christ. There can be no other Savior than this perfect God-man who is God's Son. But how can we be reconciled? Well, through His work on the cross. And He proved that we can be reconciled to God as he goes and sits at the right hand of God. Turn with me to Psalm 24. This is called an ascension psalm. Psalm 24. And this points to the staggering event of Jesus going through those ancient doors. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall ascend it? Who shall walk into his presence? And who shall stand in his holy place? Here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, which means you and I can't do it. You and I cannot go stand in the holy place of God by ourselves, can we? Verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. The King is Yahweh, and the King is Christ. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And so as Jesus ascends to the right hand of God, he paves the way for you and I 
to be reconciled to the Father. That's why in Ephesians 4, chapter 7, Paul quotes Psalm 68. He says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does he mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth, taking on the incarnation. Not only that, dying on the cross. Not only that, going to the pits of, uh, that are stored up for demons and preaching how he has conquered them. But this Christ has led a host of captives, those who were once enslaved. And not only does he lead a, coast, uh, a host of captives, but he gives spiritual gifts to them, blessing to them, the ultimate blessing, the Holy Spirit he gives to them. And if only we had time to go through Hebrews chapter 6 through chapter 10, which just shows us how Christ takes us to places we could never be, to the right hand of His Father. Hebrews 6, 19, I'm just going to show you a few. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters in to the place behind the curtain. That's the holy place where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Is that incredible? Do you realize there's nothing better than being able to live out your life for all eternity in relation to God? and in the glory of his presence. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he's a forerunner for you and for me, accomplishing every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places beyond what we can imagine. Hebrews 9.11, he says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not the temple on this earth. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Not only to be in the presence of God, but to be there for all eternity. Just makes you want to sing our glorious Christ again, does it not? Hebrews 10, 11, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away his sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down where? At the right hand of God. And finally, Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, what? Can our salvation go that high? 
that one of the New Testament writers can say, since we have confidence to enter the holy places? Can the news be that good? Can our Savior be that strong to take my rotten soul, sin-stained soul, and your sin-stained soul, that you can confidently walk into the presence of God? That would be blasphemy if we don't finish the verse. Brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Listen, Christian, when you sit there and say, I'm probably not going to make it. I'm probably not going to make it. You're not being humble. You're lowering the king who is the great high priest who has accomplished in one salvation for sinners like you and like me. So that the writer of Hebrews is not wrong when he says our hearts can be sprinkled, not because we've actually become perfected. That won't happen till Christ returns. It's steady, slow, sanctifying growth that's more like this than anything. Nothing impressive. If you look at that, you will never have confidence as you breathe your last breath that you're going to be in the presence of God. But if you look at Christ, if you look at Him ascending into heaven, your hearts, your guilty hearts will be sprinkled. Your consciences will be cleansed. Yes, be willing to look in and by the power of the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. But if that's all you do is look in, you'll give up because you'll fail. You'll fail more than your heart can handle. And so what we need to do is we need to look to our Christ. We got to look at the promises secured for us. If we're going to get out of the castle of doubt, if we're going to get out of the dungeon of despair, you have to take your eyes off yourself and look to the ascended Christ, blessing you through him. It's a fight of faith. How many times do you think the devil came to the Apostle Paul and brought to memory the vision of holding Stephen's clothes in his hands, approving the death of Stephen? How many times do you think the devil came to him and said, you really think you're getting in? You really think you're making it? This is what you did. But what does Paul say to the Galatians? The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's a king who gave. That's the fight of faith. Paul had to fight every day. 
the ascension means also that Christ is preparing a place for you. John 14, 1, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. You're my bride. The bridegroom thinks of his bride, prays for his bride, prepares a home for his bride. Don't believe the lie that Christ is up there eternally disappointed in all your failure. Does he hate sin in your life? He does. He's given you the spirit of holiness to kill sin, but he loves you. He's interceding for you. He gave his life for you and you're his bride. And when he ascended up, it didn't mean he was leaving his friends because he sends the Spirit of Christ to them. Finally, the ascension means the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we just looked at this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send you him to you. When Mary and Martha wanted Jesus there, Jesus wasn't there because Jesus was there in the body and he was somewhere else. And Jesus tells his disciples that it's better that I ascend to the Father for then I'll send my spirit that is with you now and then will be inside of you will dwell in you, where Christ will come and sit down with the Father and make his home in you to where you're the temple of the dwelling of the Spirit of God. No wonder Luke says when he ascended into heaven, he was blessing them. Because I don't think Luke can get over all that's accomplished in this Christ. Do you know just how blessed you are in Christ? Do you know the blessing of the ascension? Next week, we're going to see how joy comes from knowing Christ in this way. Eternal joy. We're going to see how worship, they continually worship Christ together in the temple because they saw the completion, the culmination of the work of Christ. And they believed the promises. So that's what we'll look at next week.